Well, good morning again, everyone. I'm glad that you're able to, to join us this morning, and I pray that you've had a good week. Uh, this week, I had a thought that went through my mind as we were finishing up the book of Habakkuk today. You know, even though we took three weeks to go over this book, obviously, you can easily read this in one sitting, as you can with many books. You know, you think of things like the Bible reading plans that allow you to uh, read through the Bible in one year. You know, I think that those are amazing accompaniments and tools that we can have. Um, but, you know, I was thinking this week, kind of how we were talking about last week and our push for immediate results. How long do we actually sit and wrestle with some of these things that we're struggling through? How long do you think Habakkuk had to wait on his watch post to hear for the Lord's answer? You know, so many times we can read through the book in one sitting and think, oh, that's a nice little story, but it could take years of their lives, years where they're walking faithfully with the Lord, living righteously, trusting in Him, putting their faith in Him continually, rather than just, you know, a, a Sunday, and then back to the rest of your work week. And it was something that was pondering in my heart and mind this week as I wrestled through this last prayer, this praise, this chapter that Habakkuk has, um, connecting it to different events in my own life, connecting, connecting that to events that are going on within our body. And you wonder how long did he stand at the watch post? You know, today we're going to find him addressing the final response from the Lord. And we're going to look at this prayer, this praise of thanksgiving that he has. We're going to look at his mindset and how it changes. You know, where he is coming out on the other side of the struggles. And he can realize that God is just, that he is righteous, and that he is going to judge the Babylonians, but just in their time. You know, the Babylonians would not go free because of their sins. He understands that Israel would be judged and it would be temporary, but that God would leave a remnant behind. The insight and the understanding that he has, that he lends to us through this chapter, I think will be very key to us for our next days. So let's read chapter 3 this morning and dive in. Chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigenoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flash was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His ways, or his were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains in the land of Midian did tremble. 
Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers and your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed, and the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in, in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Father, as we dissect this passage, I just pray that you would place your truths in our heart and mind. Help us to, to glean from this understanding today and apply it to our own lives so that we can live righteously all the days of our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this is a prayer, kind of in form of a hymn this morning, and it's a praise of thanksgiving. Uh, mainly, it's going to be recounting different events that God has done for the people of Israel, recounting the times of the Exodus and taking over in the promised land. Um, but, you know, thanksgiving is a very essential part to this prayer. It's an awe-inspiring passage. It brings about the majesty of God. It talks about his appearance in the land of Israel, how he showed up for the people. You know, we call that a theophany. So it's times that God shows up in the midst of his people. He shows up in the midst of their trials through the Exodus, through the times that they're conquering the promised land, during the times of the judges. And it's, this is what he is kind of recounting in this prayer. And through this, we see Habakkuk's faith come out. You know, we've, we've studied his wrestling, we've seen his struggles and his questions, and now we're seeing how he's going to take some steps forward, how he is going to live righteously, as the Lord had just said in chapter 2. He's going he's to place his faith more firmly in the Lord, recounting what he has done and what he has taught him. So this morning, I want to break this prayer up into three different sections. Um, and the sections are going to be based on the grammatical person that's being used. I know, English class on a Sunday, it's always fun. But we see some very interesting divisions here. You know, in verses 3 through 7, 
We see the third person being used. We do have the one reflection in the first person, but I'll address that. In 8 through 15, the second person is being used. Uh, In both of these sections, they deal with Habakkuk talking about God. And then verse 2 and then 16 through 19 are the first person being used. Or it's kind of a reflection that Habakkuk is given. So this shows kind of a natural progression to faith that we don't want to miss. Something that we want to take note of. Um, So starting with this first section, verses 3 through 7. Now this being in the third person, it's talking about who God is. Like he is talking to an audience and he's describing who God is. Um, So let's kind of break this up a little bit. You know, obviously this manifestation is showing how God has worked in the past, especially those things that he did during the Exodus journey. Now, Habakkuk is bringing back in the Holy One, a term that was used in chapter 1 to reference God. And this connection is to Mount Paran. Now, in Mount Paran, we have other verses, such as Deuteronomy 33.2, that can link Mount Paran to Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy 33.2, it says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Now, the other location that's mentioned in this section is Taman. Taman is a region in Edom. Edom is in the promised land. It's a land of Canaan. So what he is doing is he is tracing the path of the Israelites from Mount Sinai to the promised land, showing how God is intervening, how God is with the people this whole time, how he is beside them through this journey. Now, if you recall some of the other events in the Exodus journey, you can make some other connections. You know, as we break this up today, that's what I want to do, is I want to take us back into Scripture to see some different connections of what he is praising and how he is using Scripture to praise God. It's very important for us to do that, to understand what our foundation is based in. So as, as you look through some of this section in 3 through 7, you can maybe make some connections. Verse 4, for instance, his brightness was like the light. Now, you, if you're thinking of the Exodus, you can maybe think of the pillar of fire, how God would guide the, the Israelites through night. For me, I think of Moses and seeing God's glory in Exodus 33 and 34. And in 34, it says this about Moses. It said, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of God saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. You know, it it was so bright. The brightness of God is convicting to the people and their sinful lives to the point that they requested Moses put a veil over his face. And Moses would continue to go meet with God and he would have to to wear this veil. Verse 5, you can make that connection in the Exodus journey to the plagues that were upon the Egyptians, the pestilence that follows. Verse 6, comparison to show that his ways are over everlasting compared to the ways of the Egyptian gods, compared to the idols that others might be worshiping. He alone is God, and the nations will shake against him. 
Now, verse 7, as I said, um, it is first person, and, and what they're talking about here, you know, believed to be Cush and Midian, who would go up against Israel during the time of the judges. Um, they were used by God to kind of rein them in as Israel would stray away a little bit. God would raise up somebody to come in and, and correct them. And you had judges during this time as well. And, and this would correspond with Othniel in Judges 3, 8 through 11, and Gideon in 7.13, talking about these two nations that were opposed to them. Whereas the people would rely on the Lord, he would bring them victories. Now I would say, with the first person being used here, this is probably an instance that's showing um, how Habakkuk is reconciling himself to the way that God works. You know, if you recall his, his first questions about why aren't you acting, Lord? Why aren't you punishing the wickedness of the people? You know, it, it's showing how he is contemplating how other nations have been used in the past to bring correction to God's own people. How God is constant in all of this. And the wickedness will be judged. The wickedness of the people is going to be judged. And we want to hold on to that thought as well as we continue to go through this passage. Um, you know, in, in the face of the terrifying judgment that he's going to have, where the Babylonians are going to come in and judge Judah, Habakkuk is going to hold on to this portrait of God, this image of God, and continue to live righteously by his faith. And the wickedness is going to be punished, however, just in God's time, as we have talked about. You know, it's a mentality that we need to adapt in our own hearts and minds. And the prayer changes now to the second person as we go into the second section where the relationship seems to be more personal. It's no longer talking about God where he's talking to the audience, but rather he's talking to God. And in 8 through 15, we see the imagery of the Lord as a warrior really coming out. In both sections, we see how God is showing up for his people, how he is... Um, in personally involved in meeting their needs. But in this section, it starts with a rhetorical question, verse 8. You know, are you angry at the waters? Uh, this question, I think, is going to be answered in verse 12, and we'll get to that. Um, but we see the waters being mentioned here being reflective of the crossing of the Red Sea as well as crossing the Jordan during Joshua's time in chapter 4. Verse 9, however is very difficult to translate. I did some reading on it this week, and based on the three words that are there and the wide variety of translations you can have for those words, I read that there's something of 100 different translations that you can come up with for this. So I wanted to compare a little bit and bring in what the King James has to draw out an important term. King James has verse 9 saying, Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word. An oath is what I wanted to draw out for us, because there's a connection back in Deuteronomy that I want us to see in Deuteronomy 32. In verse 40 through 43, For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword, and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. 
I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and the blood of the slain and the captives, from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So we see here what Habakkuk is referencing is the oaths and the promises that the Lord made that vengeance is his, that, that the blood spilled of his people would be paid back that the arrows would avenge the blood of his servants and he would consume their enemies. You know, God had dramatically intervened in the critical hours of the Exodus journey, just as he will do for Habakkuk's day, just as we, we believe that he will do in our day as well. You know, this, the scene of him as a warrior really kind of comes out in verses 14 and 15, where we see that describing action uh, of him taking those types of actions. You know, we also see the day that the sun stood still, a call back to the battles that Joshua had in Joshua chapter 10. So again, Habakkuk is referencing all of these different events. He's recounting all of these glorious deeds of God in the same way that a lot of the Psalms do. You know, remember how we went through Psalm 105 and how David charges the people to remember all of these things that the Lord did. Our call to worship this morning was Psalm 77. It mirrors Habakkuk chapter 3. Understanding the, the, the constant call to remember the things of the Lord. It's something that is constant throughout the generations. Now, the rhetorical question in verse 8, as I said, kind of answered in verse 12, as it says that he threshed the nations. Right? We want to understand that God's not mad, or, mad at the waters. He's not mad at the seas. He's mad at the wickedness of the nations. That's what he is judging. The sin, the evil that is running rampant in the world. This absolute trust that Habakkuk has that God will judge because he is just, because he is holy. The understanding that God will punish the wickedness and sin. It's just going to be in his timing. God is a warrior who fights for his bride. A picture that perhaps um, is, is different from the initial questions that were being asked, where Habakkuk was overly concerned about what was happening around him. But he seems to have righted his perspective now in chapter 3. And it, it brings up an interesting question that I have for you. How do you picture God right now? Based on what you're going through, based on your walk today, how are you picturing God? Is it a passive picture? Is it active? Does he got the white beard and the flowy robes and sitting on his throne? Is he transcendent? Like he's not really, he's just above everything? Is he personal? Is he holding you? Is he comforting you? Is he giving you strength? Because I think the picture and the image that we have in our mind at times can affect how we're interpreting Scripture, can affect how we're interpreting the struggles that we face in our life. And we want to have a correct perspective of God. And it's going to be very important for us as we get to the end today. So I want you to dwell on that a little bit. For the first person section, 
We're going to look at verses 16 through 19, but also verse 2. Um, with all of these, I see this as a reaction uh, to everything that he has heard and seen in this prophecy. You think of the battles that he has just recounted, um, being, him being described as a warrior. You think of the pestilence, you think of the plagues, you think of the bright light, the, the shining face of Moses to reflect that, the point that, that it is just convicting the sin of the people. And then let's, let's look at Habakkuk's statement in verse 2. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So I think the way that this is placed, it's kind of a preparation for what he's about to say as he's recounting all of the deeds of the Lord. Um, in, in this prayer that's coming out. But when you tie the whole book together, when you read it as one, Habakkuk, you can see, is doing more than just standing beneath the Lord um, in a humble contrition with perplexing questions that are difficult to answer. He is standing in adoration and awe at the majesty of God. This chapter is a capstone to all of his questions and it shows the view of God that he has, that there's this level of adoration that's involved where he's not demanding an answer or he's not saying things in whininess and complaining. He's not asking God to remember the, those in Judah because of their own merits, but rather because of his mercy, because of who God is, where he is adoring the character and the person of God. He understands that, you know, the same king that he dreads, Nebuchadnezzar, the one that he is fearing right now, he understands that God's greatness will have to be made known to him as well because he is God. And we see that come to play out in the book of Daniel, right? After Nebuchadnezzar is, goes mad for seven years and goes and eats grass, he, he gets his senses restored, and the first thing that he does, praises God acknowledges who God is. He glorifies God because God is great. And Habakkuk is just praising God. He is adoring him and in awe of his majesty and his glory. Along with verse 2, let's reread verse 16. It says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So in, in this praise time, in this worship time that Habakkuk is having, he's recounting all of the acts of God, he's telling all the things that God has done, he's worshiping, he's praising him in the chapter, and I think that this is his personal response. And I think that if, if God showed up, if he manifested in a theophany today, I think our response would be very similar to where our legs would be trembling, our legs would be weak, and we would be on our knees before a holy and just God. Yet even as he is recounting all of this, I love how grounded his response is. Because he understands that trouble is coming. He understands that situations are going to be difficult. He understands that judgment is going to come upon those in Judah and upon himself. He knows that it's not going to be a nice day in the park. But his faith is evident as he says, I will wait quietly for the day that you judge 
the wickedness of the people that are going to invade us. That you would be our vindication. As believers, we too wait for the return of Jesus, for everything to be made right. No more tears, no more diseases, no more sin tormenting our daily lives. And we trust and we praise God for that coming day. We wait in awe of his majesty and power. At least we're supposed to. You see, chapter 3 here in Habakkuk places us in the framework of worship. It's important for us to realize how how the hard probing questions that he has in chapters 1 and 2, they don't end in fatalism, they don't end in skepticism, they don't end in cynicism. Right? We, we look at the situations and the struggles that we go through in this life, the hardships that we face, and we can easily get into a defeated mentality where all is lost, woe is me, there's no hope. You know, we have to understand that it's a constant attack of the enemy to take us out of a posture of praise and worship and put us into one of anxiety, of fear, of hopelessness and despair. I cannot tell you how many times through the struggles that I've gone through, the prayer on my lips has been, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because the doubts can creep in and pull you out of a posture of praise. Despair can come in and say that all hope is lost. Because the struggles are real. And they're hard. And it's easy to say the right things. It's a lot more difficult to live by faith. But the hope that I've found through studying Habakkuk is the importance of wrestling through that heart pain. To wrestle through the questions and seek understanding at the foot of the Lord. I mean, we can say what is culturally, denominationally acceptable all day. We've got traditions, we've got presuppositions, we've got niceties that sound good. It can be biblical, but perhaps have a, a bent to control and manipulate. But I find that when you're faced with the struggles that you cannot explain, those, those things that happen that challenge those traditions, those teachings, we very quickly find where our foundation has been built. Has it been built on the rock? Or has it been built on all of these other things that can be shaken? Our foundation must be firmly planted in him so that when those struggles and those hard times come, we won't be shaken. We find as, as Habakkuk is wrestling through this topic of evil and as he's finishing this book, he is doing so in worship. It is more than enough for his struggling heart and soul to praise the God of heaven, to want to glorify the name of God, to recognize his might for who he is. There's a story about Pastor John Bevere uh, visiting Jimmy Baker when he was in prison in the 90s. Um, Jimmy Baker had one of the, you know, the biggest ministries in the world at the time in the 80s and the 90s, and he was convicted of fraud, he committed adultery, and he went to prison. And Pastor Bevere had wrote a book that uh, Mr. Baker had got a copy of, he read it, and he called for a meeting. And they have a meeting, and 
conversation is cordial, um, you know, kind of going through the repentance that Mr. Baker was going through, and he just, he praised God because of being in prison. He found it to be a great mercy to him because he was on the wrong path, and God called him out of that and, and kind of checked his heart for that. And through the conversation, Mr. Be- Mr. Bevere just asked, like, look, Jimmy, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? And Jimmy's response was, I never did. And you think about that answer, and it was confusing to Pastor Bevere. He's like, what do you mean you never did? You did all of this stuff. How did you not fall out of love with Jesus? He said, I loved Jesus the entire time, but I did not fear God. Many Christians love Jesus, but they don't fear God. If all we have is this kumbaya experience of Jesus and of the Lord, our faith is shallow. Our foundation is weak because we don't understand the holiness and the justice of God. We don't understand his majesty and what he is and who he is and what he has done for his people. The point of wrestling, the point of conviction is for us to understand how grotesque our sin is, how our sin is such an affront to a holy and just God. We belittle sin all of the time. Jesus died for me so I can do what I want. That theology is a load of crap. I hate it. Because we don't come face to face with the ugliness of our sin. I can just, I can ask for forgiveness later. It's okay. Hmm. To trample on what Jesus did on the cross for our own selfishness, for our own gains. Who, are, who do we think we are? We have done some absolutely terrible things. The things that come out of our mouths as people who love Jesus. As believers of God. As recipients of salvation. Think of the sins that we have done this past week. But we love Jesus. Do we fear God? Week one, we talked about complaining. I would say that if you are complaining about things in your life not going your way, I want to ask you, how broken are you before the Lord in humility? Because I will say, just making a stat up, 87% of the time when we're complaining, it's because of our own selfish desires and not getting what we want. Not really pursuing God's will in our life. Oftentimes, we only live for ourselves. We're not concerned about the position of God as we might proclaim. But I will tell you this, God will not be fooled. Let's look at verse 17. In verse 17, you see the image of the fig tree being mentioned. And your mind might go to Jesus' teachings on the parables of the fig tree and the lessons that are shown um, in Jesus' day in Mark 11, where the tree is not producing fruit, it's not doing what it's supposed to do, so he curses the tree. But since this is the Old Testament, we can also look to the fact that Moses has a warning about this as well. In Leviticus 26, verse 18 through 20, he says, 
And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land will not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. You know, the lesson of the fig tree in Jesus' time was if the, fruit does, or if the tree does not produce fruit, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's a metaphor being used for the people. In Habakkuk's time, the people were to be following the ways of God. They were to be listening to him. They were not, so they were going to be judged because of it. A judgment that was promised back in the time of Moses. A judgment that was promised back in the time that the law was given to the people of Israel, the people of God. They will be punished. They will be judged. And then you look at verse 18. Habakkuk will rejoice in the Lord. Pause with that. You know, we've talked about the difficulties that are ahead for the people of Judah. We talk about what they're going to be facing. And here's Habakkuk saying, I'm going to be rejoicing. Have you rejoiced in your trials? Have you rejoiced in your difficult circumstances? I will tell you from experience, um, it's not easy because I've got a role in this, but many times... Many times with the Lord and rejoicing in him through trials, those times that I'm doing that, I find oftentimes sweeter than worship on Sundays. Not trying to belittle our worship time at all. And if Sunday is all you get for your relationship with the Lord each week, I'm glad that you're here. But you're missing out on so much more. There's such a depth to the relationship that you can have with Christ that can only be experienced as you walk through the fire. That can only be experienced where you're truly placing your hope and your trust in him because you have no other option in ways that you never thought possible. And those experiences are so much richer. Not that you you can't have that on Sunday, But logistics tend to get in the way. I tend to get in the way. Protocol, control, tradition, all get in the way. And as you know, my experience, you know, the saying goes, you know, I don't wish that on my worst enemy. You know, I've had that thought. I never want somebody to experience the pain that I've gone through. But if they don't, if they don't go through the struggles, then they won't be able to meet Jesus in those moments, in those times. And it's it's a double-edged sword type of thing. But it's an opportunity to see the depth of God and how he can meet you in the hurt, in the pain, in the struggle, in the grieving, in the loss. You know, I want us to be able to learn from Habakkuk and what he does. 
because he reveals how faith triumphs over the perplexities of sin, over tyranny, over destruction, over pain, over struggles and circumstances. And he gives a fitting conclusion to this book through worship. He gives a conclusion to this book that otherwise would be left with unresolved questions. You know, we went through Nahum and we talked about Jonah, how both of those those books end with rhetorical questions. There's not a resolution, so to speak. You're left hanging. But here in this book, you see his faith on display where he is praising God. So the natural question is, how does he arrive at this position to where, where you see him trembling and praising God so fearlessly after he has requested a different outcome, after he has prayed for something different than what Judah is going through? You know, how can we glean in what Habakkuk does to get this understanding in the place of our own struggles, to get to a place of depth that can be lacking? Well, as it's detailed here, he changed the focus of his thinking. Instead of being centered on himself, the people, the nation, and the culture, He takes one long, steady look at God. He realizes even though he might not like the future that the nation faces, even though he knows that there's going to be difficult times, God is over all of these troubles, and he is good. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that our troubles can nearly all be traced to our persistence in looking at the immediate problems themselves instead of looking at them in the light of God. That is what Habakkuk has learned. And that's where we need to shift in our own hearts and minds. We're too preoccupied staring at the situations, staring at the circumstances, staring at the questions, and not staring at God. We're taking our eyes off of the narrow way to the ways of the culture. But we're not living righteously. Instead, we're living selfishly. And in the face of the troubles and the tragedies that ensue, Habakkuk states very clearly and steadily, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Is that the easiest thing to do? No. And I want to say, the way that he is saying this, it's not a form of resignation, where like he's kind of giving up, it's a defeated attitude. It's not an act of excitement in the moment, like, oh, I gotta do this now because this is going on. It's not frantic in that way. It's not escapism. It's not a form of courage to battle through in your own strength. It is simply rejoicing. Now I think that we can lean on what some of the New Testament authors tell us about rejoicing in trials. You have James chapter 1, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then the apostles, the what they do after they just receive beating from those in the council. In Acts 5, 41, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple 
and from the house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. So we see, we see this written. We see it. We see the example given to us to rejoice. But we know that it's hard. It's hard to rejoice when you're going through pain, when you're going through uncertainty, when you're going through hopeless despair. It's hard when you're going through kind of the meat grinder of life and you just feel like you're just this pulp of blobby mess at the, at the outset of it because that's just how you feel. It's hard to rejoice when you're numb with grief, when you're numb with different pain. You hear different platitudes. You hear different messages that are meant to inspire, things that you know that are the truth. You know the word of God but you don't know how to move forward and actually rejoice. I mean, when I look back in my life, I know, I know mentally and spiritually I didn't take enough time off after Elaine passed away. But I knew that I had to get back into the pulpit because it would force me to keep my eyes focused on God and not on the pain, not on the grief, but on Him. And I grieved through preaching. I grieved through the pulpit time. And it was something that was cathartic for me. It was something that was hard to continue to walk through. But, you know, it, forces you, it forced me to rely on him because I knew my shortcomings. I knew where I would go if I didn't have that. And whenever there's another diagnosis, whenever there's more struggles that come about that are beyond you because you can't see the end because it's uncertain, grieving begins to happen. You know, as you face those feelings of numbness, it can be easy to fill your head with different platitudes, to tell yourself that everything's going to be okay. What will be, will be. But God doesn't want that. It could be easy to try and pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just try harder. But God doesn't want that. It could be easy just to say, just be happy because God doesn't want you to be sad. God doesn't want that. He wants us to come to him, to recognize who he is, to look at what he has done, and rejoice. And if you think that there's no way that I can do it, look at verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. He is the strength. He is the one that gives you the breath and the energy to take that next step when it seems insurmountable. He is the one that has been pushing you through this entire time, carrying you, holding you, comforting you. He is your strength. You know, what everyone goes through is different. We all have our own struggles. We all have our own hardships. We all have our moments of crisis. But there are similarities and constants in them as well. And the constant is God. He is to be your strength. He is your salvation. Whether you're coming with doubts, whether you're coming with questions, with pains, with struggles, with praises, we rejoice because of who he is and what he has done. And we hold on to the hope of that he will do what he says he will do. He is over all and he is holding you all through the pains and the hurts, wanting you to come to him. You know, we are to walk and live faithfully, righteously, 
trusting in him in all things, even when we can't understand, even when we don't like the outcome that's coming. We hold our faith firmly in him and we trust in him because of who he is, because he is God and he is good. Let's pray. Father, as we finish up this book, I want to thank you for the resolve of Habakkuk and what he has taught us about praising you, about wrestling through hard things, not shying away from those things, Lord. But through it all, rejoicing in you. His God, his Savior. Lord, in our lives, as we place our hope and our faith in you, as we claim to love you, Lord, I pray that we can live righteously. The righteous will live by faith, as your word says. So Lord, as we live by our faith, I pray that we understand who, we are, who you are and who we are, that we would have a great fear of you, one that would tremble at the sight of you. Understanding the disdain and just the abhorrence of, of sin in our lives, so, Lord, I pray that you would convict us of those things, that you would bring about repentance in our hearts as we have committed those sins against you, as we have done things to hurt our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray for a spirit of repentance and forgiveness. And, Lord, for those of us that are going through struggles and trials of various kinds, I pray for a heart that would rejoice. And Lord, if we don't know where to turn, I pray that we can trust that you are our strength. Lord, it is difficult to walk through the fires. It is difficult to, to face some of these struggles. Our hope, our trust is in you. We might not know the outcomes, but we trust that that you are over all in these situations. So I lift up our perspectives, our hearts, our minds, the pictures that we have of you, that you would correct them, that you would help us to understand that you are holy, that you are majestic, that you are glorious. Lord, we praise you for who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.